This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Well, we have an Advent text today from the book of Isaiah, and it's not a traditional Advent or Christmas text from that book, which is filled with so, wonder, so many wonderful promises of Christ the Redeemer, but we're turning to Isaiah chapter 64 today. You know, Advent is not a sentimental time. It's as much a season of penitence as it is a season of hope. Because when Christ was born, he did not come into a warm and welcoming world, He came into a disaster zone. He came into a world that was cold and rejected and finally crucified him. Because God does not arrive in a pristine, innocent situation. He shows up in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of disease, and in the midst of death. And we long for the coming of God in our midst. So let's read the word of God together from the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold. You were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you? For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? And afflict us so terribly? In this chapter, we have 
an anguished cry for God to come to us who are weeping, who are weeping in the ruins. We need God to show up. And Isaiah is writing about a time of national disaster. The worst possible thing has happened. Israel, the southern kingdom, has long resisted the prophets and their warnings. And then, finally, in 586 BC, Babylon comes, lays siege to the city, starves them out, breaks in, burns the city, loots and plunders the temple and the holy places, and then takes its people into captivity to a faraway land where they sit beside the rivers of Babylon and weep for what has befallen them as a people. And in this situation, Isaiah the prophet is prophetically crying out to God on behalf of his people. Has God abandoned us? Has God forgotten about us? Is he going to leave us to smolder in the ashes of judgment? Or is there perhaps some hope that God will hear our cry and reach down and rescue us? And the longing in the prophet's heart is for God to rip the heavens open, the heavens open and descend and be present once more among his people. This terrible exile is not the first time this has happened. An Israelite could remember a thousand years ago, the people of God had been in slavery in the land of Egypt to the superpower of that day, and they had cried out to deliverance for God in their misery, and God had heard, and he had sent a rescuer, And he had rolled up his sleeves, he had bared his mighty arm, and in signs and in wonders and miracles and judgment, he had rescued the people from their oppressors and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And surely, if God had done this once, why could God not do this again? We have heard the stories. We have all rehearsed the story together, Passover after Passover after Passover, about how God was a God who acted on behalf of those who waited for them, a God who showed mercy in his power. And here we are, far from home, crying out to God once again to reach down and rescue us. And we, the people of God, had been there at the foot of Mount Sinai when God descended. And the mountain was covered with dark clouds, and there was thunder, and there was lightning, and the mountain shook with the holy and terrifying presence of God. And we all fell down on our faces before this awesome God who was in our midst. We were a small and weak people the smallest and weakest of the people. But God came among us and he rescued us from disaster and he put our feet on the rock. And if God did this once, 
to a weak and waiting people, God, why not again? And it's the cry down through the centuries of those who have longed for revival, of those who have realized that the people of God are in a sorry situation. And there's decay and death and despair, and our only hope is for God to descend in power and cause the nations to know that he is the Lord. It happened once. Why not again, God? Please come down. Rip the heavens open like you would tear a piece of cloth and come from outside our world and break into our world and bring salvation to those who are longing for you. Because you are a God who does awesome things for those who don't even expect you to show up. This is the kind of God you are. You love to display your power. You love to cause the nations to fall on their face in awe before you. God, please do this again in our own day. You are still the living and powerful God, are you not? Will these just be stories that recede into myths? Or are you a God who still does these kind of things today? Surely you are this kind of God. You are a God who acts on behalf of those who wait for you. God, when people's eyes are upon you and when people are persistently praying and seeking you and hungering and thirsting after your presence, surely, God, you are not deaf to the cries of your people, but you are a God who steps forth to act. There is no God like this. You are not an idol we keep in our temple whom we wash and feed and take care of. You are a powerful God who hears and who answers the prayers of those who wait for you. And surely, God, if there are people who are joyfully walking in righteousness, who are living lives of justice, who are obeying your commands and following your precepts, surely, God, you will hear the cries of those righteous people and you will rip the heavens open and come to their aid once again. But sadly, as Isaiah must confess, this is not who we are. We are not people who have been joyfully working righteousness, who have patiently sought the Lord our God with all of our hearts, and all of our soul, and all of our mind. Isaiah is representing people who are trapped in their sin. And they've been in their sin a long time. And this calamity is not just a matter of outward circumstances, some strange disaster that has befallen us, We have brought this whole thing down on our own 
heads. And here we sit in a misery of our own devising. Well, surely, repent. Seek God. Cry after him. But Isaiah recognizes the people are long past this point. And this is the true horror and tragedy of sin. When we've been soaking in sin so long, we no longer find ourselves able to repent, no longer willing to repent, which comes down to the same thing. And this is one of the most profound meditations on the nature of sin in the Old Testament, I think, where sin is something that promises power and control and freedom in our lives. And the irony, of course, is that it begins to enslave us. It begins to change us. It begins to, like a parasite, to eat away at our humanity. And our very heart for God begins to vanish. I saw in the news this week, Harvey Weinstein, remember him from, what, last year was it? This powerful Hollywood producer who was using his power to, um, you know, sexually abuse young female actresses who were vulnerable and dependent on him. And I saw him going into court this week, and he had back surgery recently, and he was uh, walking behind a walker, and he looked so small and weak and frail. He almost looked like someone who had just had a stroke. It was a very, very sad picture of someone who was, well, he was pursuing power. It was really about power as much as, as it was about sex. And now this person is finding himself in the humiliation of weakness. And it's what sin brings all of us to. It promises life, and then it works death out into our lives. And we have to confess before God that all of us, all of us without exception, are unclean before God. And our sinful choices, and more than that, our sinful lusts and desires, make us something filthy before God. And they bring shame and defilement upon us. And Isaiah doesn't even have to talk about the wickedness of the people. Even our righteous deeds, he says, the very best things about us are like a filthy rag. And literally, it's about a woman's menstrual garment. This literal and ritually unclean thing is what our righteousness is before God because all the very good things that we're doing are actually a way to keep God at arm's distance, safe from us. Our very best things are bad. And what about our worst things? And here we are, Isaiah describes the people as fading like a leaf. A dry, brittle leaf connected to the tree that is its life by the merest thread. And then the wind comes along and sweeps it away. And that wind is our sin. We find ourselves in the power of a force that is taking us over. Sin 
with a capital S begins to eat away at us, at our humanity and our goodness and our very desires for God. And here are these people are in a situation, Isaiah says, where no one is calling upon the name of the Lord. No one can even rouse themselves to lay hold of God and wrestle with him like Jacob wrestled with the angel. After being in sin so long, we find ourselves listless and apathetic, unable to wake ourselves up from this deathly sleep of sin. And even though we know we're headed in a bad direction, we fatalistically keep on going down this path because we're unable to summon the motivation to repent and seek after God with our whole hearts. So deadened and enslaved we are in our sin. And the people find themselves in this horrible dilemma, this catch-22, as it were. Because Isaiah says the reason that no one can wake themselves up and rouse themselves to seek God is because God has hidden his face from them in verse 7. So here's the problem. God will not appear until we repent and begin to act justly. But we find ourselves unable to repent and act justly until God appears. This is the tragedy, the dilemma, this horrible cycle we find ourselves in. And we're trapped and we're stuck in our sin, unable to get ourselves out, unable even to will to get ourselves out and seek God. Every once in a while you hear a story of a little child who's wandering in their backyard or in a field and they discover a shaft that no one has capped up, some narrow shaft, and this little three-year-old somehow falls into the shaft 50, 60, 70 feet and finds himself wedged in, unable to move, and their writhings only plunge them deeper down. And this is a picture of the human race of all of us trapped in our sin. And we can't wriggle our way out. We can't maneuver and climb up by our fingernails. We need someone to have pity on us in our helplessness and come and rescue us from this horrible, claustrophobic situation. I don't know how this speaks to you. If you are feeling trapped in any way in some deep, habit of sin where your choices have now become your character and your character is becoming your destiny and you are unable because unwilling to seek God with all your hearts and you're here but you're listless and perhaps even fatalistic and there's nothing that we can do about this there's nothing we can do about this. We're melting in the hands of our iniquities. But here's the logic 
that the men and women of God have always argued with him in times of calamity and even calamity caused by our own sin. If God has bruised us, then God can bind us up. If God is the judge, then why can God not be the savior? Because this exile, this disaster, our burned and looted homes are not the action of unseen fate. They are the judgment of God. God is sovereign. God is in control. And therefore, God can do something. God can always do something. God is able to fix this problem that we are unable to fix. And in verse 8, Isaiah, on behalf of the people, begins appealing to God and making his argument. And the argument is not and never ought to be based on the character of the people and how well they've repented and how firmly they are now standing in obedience to God. Isaiah appeals to the sheer character of God, to the goodness, to the mercy, and to the compassion of God. And he begins to speak of God as Lord, all capitals, and that's God's covenant name revealed to Moses and to Israel in the bush burning with fire. I am who I am, and I am your God, and you will be my people. And God, we belong to you. We are your possession. You have called us by your name. And we are the clay, and you are the potter. And even a potter working with clay has a sense of responsibility to what he has made. And surely, God, surely, after all these centuries, even of wrestling with your unfaithful people, surely you are not going to give up now and throw us in the bin Are you? God, are you really going to let my sin overwhelm your creative purpose for me? Is that really how you want it to end, God? Because surely, Lord, you should be the one having the last word in this situation. If you are God and if you are in charge... Are you really going to let us in our sins be the ones who determine our future? You ought to have the last word, O Lord. And we know that if only you would behold and look upon your people and see us in our misery, see the devastation that sin and judgment have caused, If you'd only look on the charred, burnt-out hulks of our temple and our building, all these precious and pleasant things that have been destroyed, our hope and ashes, surely, God, if you would look, the goodness and the mercy and the pity in your heart would cause you to come down and rescue us. And this prayer ends with a challenge to God. Oh, Lord, will you restrain yourself when you see these things? 
God, will you be able to hold yourself back from coming down and rescuing us? And after all this, Lord, will you still refuse to help us? This cry from the depths is the cry of Advent. God, come. God, please, please come and rescue us from our sin and our misery. We're wedged in here, Lord. We're wedged in and we cannot get ourselves out of the situation our own sin has brought us into. And we're being overwhelmed by powers greater than us that we've invited in. And God, unless you come, unless you rip the heavens open and descend, this is, this is going to be the end. That's the only hope that we have. And it turns out, as Isaiah knew all along, that God cannot stand by. And God finds himself unable to behold the sin and the misery of his people, the despair and death that has been wreaked upon the world without being moved to pity and compassion. For God is not only a God of judgment, he is a God who has mercy upon all that he has made. And even while Isaiah is praying these words, God's rescue operation is underway. And God does come down in the form of Jesus Christ. And this coming is not a violent ripping open of the heavens, but Jesus slips past the curtain, as it were, and the power of God is manifested in the most frail weakness. Because God is the kind of God who does awesome things that no one expects. And in Jesus, God is about to do something He's about to bring salvation in a totally unexpected way. Weakness, suffering, death. It's so striking in Isaiah chapter 64 how the prophet Isaiah identifies himself completely with the people. We have all become like one who is unclean, and we're all fading like a leaf. And surely in that time of disaster, a righteous man like Isaiah, who has just written 63 chapters of exalted, glorious poetry celebrating the salvation of the Holy One of Israel, surely he would have felt the temptation to stand back 
I'll be saved, I'll be included among the righteous, while all the rest of them go down to the pit. But Isaiah does no such thing, and he is in total solidarity with these sinning and suffering people. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ has come to do, to come as the new Israel in total solidarity with us. And he climbs down into the shaft to take our place in that claustrophobic, crushing judgment of God. And all the horror and the uncleanness and the defilement of sin he absorbs in his own person. And this coming of Jesus is not for those who are seeking him. Because he comes into a world where no one is even rousing themselves to lay hold of God. But he comes for people who will reject him and crucify him. And he willingly comes as the servant of God for you and for me. And he takes on himself our guilt and our shame. And he destroys the power of sin. It's not only about taking judgment and punishment. It's also about the power of sin in our lives. This alien power that is eating away at us and taking us over. Jesus came to deal with that too. He came to take these dead, brittle leaves, blown to the four corners of the earth, and reattach them to the tree of life. So that the resurrection of Jesus begins to flow in us as well. And he gives his Holy Spirit so that we can have new hearts where we do begin to rouse ourselves to seek after God. We are changed from the inside and we begin to long after God and desire him and love him. Our hope this Advent is not in human calculation or political schemes or even our religious endeavors. Our hope is in God alone. And if you came here this afternoon feeling trapped, feeling the power of this alien force in your own life, God's rescue for you is underway also. Because our God is a God who acts on behalf of all who wait for him. Not for those who deserve him. Not for those who are perfect, even in their faith and repentance. But for those who put their hope in God. The Christian religion is not about us climbing upwards to tear the heavens open as we reach up to God. It's about God tearing the sky as he comes down 
for us. Jesus came for sinners in their filth and in their misery. He came for you in your sin and in your misery. And all he asks is that you would just be honest. Admit your sin, your slavery, your helplessness before God, your total need of him. This is not an add-on, a little power-up we're offering you. This is a totally new life. And it can only be received as a sheer gift from God. Being broken out of this claustrophobic shaft by his power. This is the story of all of us. It's the story of all of us. And you are welcome too, by God, to receive this as a gift from him. Trapped as you are, miserable as you are, enslaved in sin as you are, weak as your own desires for God might be, you can become a child of God today and receive new life in him simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. Let's pray and seek the face of this good, merciful, compassionate God. Father, we come to you and we lift our hands to you and ask that you would act on behalf of us as we are waiting for you. This Advent Sunday, we admit our total helplessness, O Lord, our complete inability even to want to seek you, We need your Holy Spirit to change us, O God. We need the resurrection of Jesus Christ to flow into our own lives. Come in power, Lord Jesus. Come and change us. Give us new hearts, give us new desires, and give us new life in you. In your name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.